Sass Backwards is sponsored by Austin Lawrence Group, specializing in demand gen for SaaS. It sure is noisy. I deleted 100 emails from vendors just this morning. Your buyer has gotten better at ignoring you, and you're going to need a big idea if you want to cut through all that clutter. Austin Lawrence is just the right agency to help you find it. So if your campaigns are falling on deaf eyeballs, let's talk. Visit austinlawrence.com today, and let's build something bigger. Welcome to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, where we reverse engineer the success of fast-growing SaaS firms and explore strategies CMOs and CEOs are using to drive their businesses forward. Welcome everyone to another episode of SaaS Backwards. It's a podcast that helps SaaS CMOs and CEOs to accelerate growth and enhance profitability. Our guest today is Jeff Solomon, founder at Markup Hero, a SaaS product that is a screenshot and annotation suite and enables these functions for other SaaS products as well. Hey Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Likewise, really happy to have you here. Before we get into the conversation, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Absolutely. As well, Markup Hero. Yeah, for sure. So Markup Hero is my current project, but I've been in the SaaS space and startup ecosystem for the last 20 years. I founded a SaaS CRM company called Velocify in 2004, which we sold in 2017. That was a pretty sizable exit, good cap table. And I also founded a incubator accelerator called Amplify. We're on our fifth fund. We've deployed more than 50 million in capital to very early stage companies. We've had a number of exits. It's been a nice run. Give me an opportunity to sit on the other side of the table, on the investor side, as well as the founder side. And yeah, now I'm building this annotation product, Markup Hero. Started out as a side project, a little side hustle like a lot of us do. And it's gained some traction and we're trying to scale that and trying to see if we can get it into other SaaS applications as an annotation API developer library, which is a new approach. So that's what I'm up to. That's awesome. And I think it's really interesting, the idea of targeting your development at other SaaS products. We had a conversation with a marketing team last summer. It was Agora. Those are the folks that are doing video and text and audio chat, uh-huh. embedding in other products. And they seem to be doing really well with that embedded strategy. So Yeah, we, we certainly can talk more about that. I, I definitely am a big believer in that as a SaaS strategy. And then there are plenty of companies that are doing only products for other SaaS and have no direct product. So that's becoming a growing area. Sure. I think we should get into that, but let's start with what you're doing there. This is a bootstrap, which I think is interesting, especially for a guy that's got pretty good venture connections. So I think it would be really interesting to talk about the mindset and how you're approaching the growth of Markup Hero. Sure. I'd say I'm probably more of a bootstrapped oriented founder than a venture oriented founder. I've certainly raised a ton of money and I've helped and deployed a lot of capital. So I've been on that side, but I really excel working in a very small team with limited resources and growing things from the ground up that way. I mean, even Velocify, which we ended up raising 30 some odd million for over the course of the run, the first several years, getting it to three, 400,000 in monthly requirements 
recurring revenue, it was all bootstrap. We got it to that point on our own steam. So I've been very effective at that. And there's a pros and cons. Raising money has its advantages and disadvantages. But for me, that's been my sweet spot and what I really enjoy. And having had some success in my career, I obviously would love to have another monster exit, but it's not the primary driver of what I do these days. I really want to enjoy myself. So with Marco Piero, like I said, we started as a side project. Me and then two other guys were consulting for a company here in LA and that company was kind of headed out and we saw the path that was going down and we're like, hey, let's work on something on the side. And we evaluated a lot of ideas and I shared this screenshot and annotation thing was something that I did multiple times a day and they did often. And it's a competitive space. There are a lot of products in the space and in somewhat of a commoditized space. So we were concerned about that as a reason why not to do it. But just because there's competitors and the product has somewhat become commoditized, we still saw that there was a lot of holes. And I certainly did as a power user of this space and really thought we could build something fairly quickly that we could get to market and build a nice cash flow machine without having to raise money or do a lot on that side. And so that's sort of how we started the business. And now it's starting to scale and go beyond it. And we're spending more and more time on it. Well, so there's a lot to unpack there. So, <laughs> so there's the notion of the SaaS as a lifestyle business. There's the idea of going after a crowded space and saying, just because there's a lot of people there, a lot of products there, a lot of entrants, doesn't make it a bad place. Maybe it's a really good use case without a great set of solutions. That's possible. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea of what it takes to bootstrap a tech product and having founders. So there's like four things in there. Yeah. So I actually want to visit with something we didn't talk about very briefly, which is the founder group, these people that you knew before you were working on this other project. So is this a band of people that have played together multiple times? Since we met, it has. The markup hero was the second thing we worked on together. But I think you bring up a really good point about founder team structure. And I've dealt with that a lot over my career. My very first company that I started, I had six founders, which was too many. And I learned that the hard way. And four of those founders were like best friends. And that did not work. That's not to say you can't start a company with your best friends. But in, in that case, it was very challenging and it just did not work. And I damaged some really great relationships from that. And I learned a lot from that first startup, which crashed and burned. And subsequently, I started thinking about how to structure a founding team and what was important. And this is something that I get a lot from people that I advise. Working with founders and building your founding team is a big challenge. And really, I'd say a key factor in whether the company is successful. And so for me, I found that the optimal team is about three people. And those three people really need to have a pretty well-rounded skill set. And if you're building SaaS in particular, obviously you need someone that's strong on the engineering front. And one of these three guys was extremely strong. I've worked with a lot of engineers in my career and some great ones. And this guy was just very, very talented. And also we got along really well, which is a key component. And the other guy was a front-end designer product person that had some marketing chops and was pretty well-rounded on that front. And then myself, you know, being able to do grassroots marketing, content marketing, business development, sales, like really having a wide range of skills, not being a great programmer. I can write code, but it's kind of ugly. So I didn't really need to focus in that area at all. But the three of us can essentially build anything. And so incidentally, while we were building Markup Hero and not making any money at first, I would essentially bring them to my consulting project. So I'd pick up a new consulting project. They'd need engineering and product work. I would bring those 
those two guys over. So the three of us would essentially be building other people's stuff. And then on the side, working on our stuff, which is a very typical model for a bootstrap. So that's really interesting. I recorded an episode earlier this week and the founder called it founder dating. This group of people did not know each other before they came together. This sort of sounds like, I don't even know, it's like founder trooping. We're trooping from one thing to another. Yeah. You sort of find your troop and you try and hold them together for multiple things. It's kind yeah. of an interesting idea. Yeah, I do. I've been known to do that when I find a good crew and whether or not I'm starting my own thing or just working on consulting arrangements or taking projects, I'll try and bring my same crew because I know I can get stuff done. When I go into a company and they've got some outsourced team, I don't know for sure if I can build it in the timelines that they want or that I think. And when I have my own team, someone says, hey, we want to build this feature and I can certainly scope out any feature. And then I can get a pretty good sense of what it's going to take to actually get it launched and QA'd and working when I have my own crew. So we've been able to build a lot of stuff. In fact, just as an example, I came into a project about 18 months ago that the guy had already spent half a million dollars with an outsourced team to build this product. And it just, it went awry, which is too common. It's something I advise founders on a lot in this outsourcing, you know, SaaS gone wild project. And, you know, we essentially rebuilt the entire platform in six months from scratch. And it was 10x better than what they had. And it ended up costing them significantly less than they had already spent. And people often think, hey, you bring in a developer that's $200 an hour, like I can't afford that. But you pay someone $200 an hour versus $30 an hour overseas, and they get something done at a higher quality in like an eighth of the time, it actually ends up being cheaper. So that's something I try to alert new founders to. It's not always best to go with the cheapest rate because it doesn't always work out. It's sometimes better to just pay a premium to get someone amazing. That's really interesting. I love that little insight. So there's two things in there. One is the, the notion of building your crew as you navigate other things, maybe before you do your startup and have an idea you'd like to do that. So building your network and building your team. And I think the having early in my career built software, I sure know the difference between capable and inexpensive. There's a lot of margin between those two. So this business, it's bootstrapped and you're not driving for growth at any cost, right? You're doing an organic growth of this business to the extent possible. And when we talked to you, you hadn't decided, is it a lifestyle business or are you going to try and grow it to exit? And how does that work internally with your co-founders? It's a good fit. I mean, sometimes you have co-founders where one is like, we have to shoot for the stars and have a monster exit or nothing. And in this case, these founders are open to both options. I'm definitely open to both options because I'm not driven by monster exit. I really want to enjoy myself and I obviously want to continue to make money, but a lifestyle business appeals to me at this stage. So they're open to both, which is cool. So we sort of are evaluating when it makes sense. You know, if we can get some significant traction on this developer library product, which is sort of the Twilio for annotation. Maybe it makes sense to try and raise and scale that, but raising money comes with a whole bunch of strings. And so even if I could go out to my network and be like, I'm going to scale this thing to a $500 million company and raise a couple million bucks, it doesn't necessarily mean that's the best decision. I've seen too many companies sell for hundred million and the founder walk away with a million bucks versus a lifestyle business that's throwing off half a million dollars in excess cash flow every year. And 
they run it for five years and they just made two and a half million bucks. So it could be significantly more profitable for you as a founder to just have a lifestyle business than it is to have a big exit. So just somebody to keep in mind. Yeah, I, I think this underrepresented viewpoint in entrepreneurism and in the software space, but in so many other parts of entrepreneurial endeavor, the lifestyle business is the goal, right? Yeah. You know, I want a business, like, like a friend of mine I play tennis with, he had a business, they had 200 engineers working on environmental consulting and the guy was basically phoning it in. He didn't have to do anything. He had 200 people working for him, which is a pretty big lifestyle business. Yeah. But it was a great lifestyle. And ultimately when he sold it, it didn't grab any headlines, but that looks pretty good from where I sit. So I think that's an aspiration we can uncover even beyond this episode. Talk about how to look for the opportunities that create lifestyle business and software. Maybe we should become champions of the lifestyle business or something. <laughs> I mean, it's, there's something to be said about it. I'm not discouraging anyone from going for a monster exit. Certainly a lot of learning to be had there. It's very exciting, but it's very challenging. Once you bring in outside capital into your business to try and grow it, you have restrictions on the decisions that you can make. You're really put into a particular funnel and it doesn't give you as much flexibility. So I think the best way to look at it as a founder is one, what's important to you in terms of what you want to be doing for the next five to 10 years. And two, does it make sense for the business to try and raise and go that path? And if those answers point you in one direction, then go that direction. If not, then be okay with a different direction. Be open to different options. Fair enough. Hey, let's talk a little bit about how you were able to learn what was important for this product. You did some customer interviews viewing and you have a point of view on the interviews and extracting needs before uh, building product or while building products. I'd love for you to just share some of your advice on that. Yeah. So I'm definitely a big advocate of customer development, trying to understand the real needs, the real pains before building something. This is one of the reasons why some of the best startups, people are solving their own problem first. I think Dropbox is a great example. Drew was like, this is my problem and I want to solve it for me. And certainly a lot of other people have that same problem. So that's a good way to think about a startup. But I always want to talk to more potential customers before I start building something. And in fact, I've framed my career around that. I've actually created an online course about it. I've been teaching a high school level entrepreneurship class for eight years. And the framework for that class is customer development. These students come in and like, oh, I want to build an app. Oh, I want to do this. Oh, I want to make that. And I said, okay, those are cool ideas, but let's go talk to some customers and see if other people actually have that need. And it's a very nuanced skill in that you can't just go ask someone, hey, do you have this problem? If you load the question with the problem, nine out of 10 times, you're going to get a false positive. And so it becomes a real art in trying to extract those problems from customers and the questions you ask and the conversations you have to get them to tell you they have a problem without loading the question with the actual problem. So what's the secret? The real secret is just have conversations and not necessarily treat it like a survey. Typically people go out with a survey and in a survey, the answers you're looking for are often loaded inside the questions. So I really encourage people to just get on the phone with customers and really get them to tell you stories. When customers start sharing a story about how they operate in that area or what they do, a lot of problems tend to pop up. And so that's really what I encourage people to do is just get on the phone with them and listen for the pain 
pain. And almost always people will be like, yeah, I do this, I do this, I do this. And then this happens and it's oh, so annoying. And then I do this, I do this. Oh, wait, tell me about that. That little annoying thing. What was that? And you try and dig in on those hints. So if we get on the phone with someone, we have a discussion guide, but we don't have 20 questions. You really do have a guide. You have some ways to keep them in the realm and not get too off topic, but really let them share the pain from their own sort of natural flow of the conversation. And it takes practice. I encourage and train a lot of entrepreneurs on this stuff and it takes multiple times. In fact, the reason I got so interested in this is because the very first company I started, the crashed and burned and I didn't do any of that because I didn't know that was necessary and I didn't have any mentors at that time. And we basically built something that nobody wanted, that nobody needed. And so of course they didn't use it and of course they're not gonna pay for it. But when I told them, hey, we're building this thing, they were like, oh, that sounds cool, right? Oh, that sounds really neat, but it really wasn't scratching an itch. And so from that experience, I said, there's gotta be another way. And even in the second startup, I still didn't have a true framework developed, but I had an insight that there was a need to talk to people. And the way that Velocify was created, it was out of observing what I was doing with other clients. I had this consulting firm and I was working with clients and listening to their problems and solving them with software. And I realized that a lot of my clients have the same issue. And that was a problem I discovered. And then we're like, let's build a SaaS product to accommodate that issue for any of these clients, the ones we have today and the ones that are like them. And that was essentially the first step at customer development in a non-organized way. You know, it's interesting. I view consulting as a really great path to other things, whether it's in your case, building SaaS products, getting enough industry knowledge in different places to say, ah, I see a problem. Or I've had friends in the advertising business go into consulting only to be able to go back into the advertising business at a much higher level. And I think maybe that's underappreciated too, is that providing consulting services gives you an opportunity to really look in a lot of different businesses and start to generalize some problems or contextualize them. Absolutely. I'd say a lot of great startups have started by way of the founders working in other things and observing and seeing, oh, well, why does this happen this way? This could be an interesting product. I think that's a great way to get some exposure. And I really encourage a lot of founders because I see so many high school founders that are going to college that want to start their companies right away. And I encourage them to take a few jobs and work on a few projects first and get some experience there before jumping into their first startup. Because like you said, you'll observe a lot of things and be able to hone in on potentially a better opportunity than what you had when you were 17. Let's talk a little bit about scaling up a business like yours. What do you think the steps are within the constructs as the business is today? What is it going to take to scale this business? What are the strategies and tactics that are going to help you scale acquisition and onboarding? Yeah, for me, I always start with content marketing because it's effective and it's inexpensive if your team can do it in-house. I can write content myself. I can do outreach to other sites and places where I want that content distributed or I want links to that content. It's something that I can bootstrap myself and not outsource. And it's also something that you can scale as you get a process down. You can then bring on other people to replicate that process. So I always start with that and that brings in organic traffic. It's basically an SEO tactic. And organic traffic is always high quality relative to paid traffic. With paid, you have people higher up in the funnel, there's less intent. And so it's something you need to do to scale. But early on, finding that low hanging fruit of people that are actually looking to solve the problem that your product solves is where I want to start. I want to get those early adopters. And also content marketing is something that takes time to build up your domain authority and SEO footprint. So you need to start early. 
early. And I really encourage founders to always begin that process from day one and then scale it from there. So that's where I always start, depending on where the path of the business goes. If there's opportunity for paid acquisition, certain businesses are better suited for that. Getting into AdWords and other kinds of ad placement, I'll start to work on that. And then in the case of Markup Hero, as we move into this developer API, there's some real sales and business development effort that is needed to get in front of these other SaaS applications and get them to see that this is something that might be beneficial for them to add. I had mentioned the company Twilio, and I had a really interesting experience with them in their early stage. In fact, Velocify was one of the first clients to really heavily use Twilio back in 2008. And at one point for a good 18, 24 months, we were the largest client of Twilio. And so I knew Jeff Lawson personally, and we worked to try and build his API to suit our needs. And we really worked closely together to build that product. And that's when I realized at that point, they're a business that just provides an API service to another SaaS company could be a big business. And obviously that turned out to be the case. I should have swapped stock with him. Back in the day, I remember sitting in a coffee shop and he was telling me about this business. And I was like, this could actually work for our business. We have this need and we were growing. And I probably could have said, hey, let's swap a couple of points. And he might've done it. We were bigger than him at that time. And that was a missed opportunity for sure. But he did hey, a great job at that company. We all have our woulda, couldta's. So that's for sure. yours. <laughs> right there. Maybe it's good to dig in a little bit on this API as a service for other SaaS. You shared with me the venture capital index of those firms. It looks like it's a really vibrant space that maybe is a little under the radar. What attracts you about that space versus selling to the end user? What's the dynamic there for you? Well, the potential to scale the business rapidly is very high because if you take the Twilio example, if you go to an Uber, which they ultimately did get that client who has a lot of scale already, you land one client and you are essentially landing thousands and thousands of clients because you're tapping into their reach. So for an early stage company that's out there trying to grow, you can add one user at a time. And especially in the case of Markup Hero, it's a really inexpensive product. We're talking about $5 a month. It's a very low end SaaS product. So for us to get to hundreds of thousands or millions of users, it's like one at a time. It's a slow grow. But if we can do a deal with a Notion or an Asana or one of these companies that has tons and tons of users, instantaneously, we have a huge scale potential. So that's very appealing. That doesn't mean that getting those deals is not hard. It's very hard. Doing B2B deals is challenging. But if there's a real pain point there and need, and especially now, I think more and more companies are starting to see that even if they have a team of 100 developers or whatever they have, it doesn't always make sense to build everything, even though they could build everything. They're not going to rebuild things that are commoditized services when they could just use someone else's when that's becoming more and more accepted. I think that's very appealing for a founder to think about how they can build an API as a service and not necessarily only have the software as a service to direct it to end user. So maybe generalizing from your experience, even if the space on the end user side is crowded, might not be crowded in the API business, right? Yeah. And the reason this one really made sense to us is an example, a real world example. I used to use Evernote religiously. I think you still use Evernote. Oh, right um, now. <laughs> okay. So, but I switched to Notion several years ago, but Evernote maybe 10 years ago bought this product Skitch, essentially a competitor to Markup Hero, right? It's a screenshot and annotation product. And they bought it and they integrated it into Evernote in a seamless way. And it was fantastic. In fact, it was the only reason I didn't leave Evernote for years 
years is because they had this feature and you could do the annotation directly in a note and nobody else has that. Like you can't do that in Notion. You can't do that in Coda. You can't do that in Asana, none of those products. And so having had that experience that this was so useful and other people shared the same thing, our thinking was, hey, if we could get these other products to see the value there, it's something that we could get some real scale with some of these clients. And right now we have small guys. We've got small products using the API, but the question back to you, how do you scale? There's a point where we will say, you know what? It's time to implement a small sales team or a BD team to really go after these companies and be more deliberate on trying to acquire new customers. And I'd say we're not quite there yet, but that is a path that we could go down. And that might make sense to actually raise money if we actually knock down a couple of these bigger guys and our list is huge that could get us to millions of users. It could be a pretty significant business. Well, I think that's a great place to land the podcast. I feel like we covered the topics we had hoped to cover. I think Markup Hero is a really interesting utility and we're going to check it out for our own use. So if people want to try the product, where do they go to learn more? MarkupHero.com. I will give you a code where people can get some free use and you can share that with your audience. Certainly you guys can test it out. And if anyone has a SaaS application that's interested, you can look at how the API works. It's very easy to implement, super easy to test. It's just some JavaScript. And we'd love to hear from any of those guys as well. Great. And how can people get in touch with you, Jeff? Personally, the best way is through my personal website, which is bak.me, back me. You reach out to me via email. I do, like I said, a lot of advisory calls. You can access my course from there. So I'm very reachable in that way and happy and love to talk to entrepreneurs, love to help out founders. So feel free to connect with me. Well, thanks so much for offering all that resource and access to our listeners. And for those of you listening to the podcast for the first time, if you found this episode of value, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. We're pretty much widely distributed. And Jeff, thanks so much for making this a great episode of SaaS Backwards. Awesome, man. Thanks, Ken. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, brought to you by Austin Lawrence Group. We're a growth marketing agency that helps SaaS firms reduce churn, accelerate sales, and generate demand. Learn more about us at www.austinlawrence.com. You can email Ken Lempett at kl at austinlawrence.com about any SaaS marketing or customer retention subject. We hope you'll subscribe, and thanks again for listening.